Well, good morning. Man, it's so good to see you here. And I know that there's a lot watching as well, so it's just good to be together. Um, I don't know about you, I just, I can't get over it. I, I have missed this. Um, and we're not even able to hug or anything yet. It's just going to get better and better, and more people are going to begin to flow into this place and feel more comfortable about being here, and it's just going to be a good thing. Listen, I know this has been tough. This has been a difficult season, and I get that. And I so appreciate, I don't want to say this to everybody watching, to you in the, in the service. Thank you so much for your faithfulness. Our church, our partners have been so kind and so faithful to continue to give, to continue to be engaged, and uh, continue to be a part of your, your city groups. And I just, I just want to say thank you. I appreciate it so very much. We love you. Well, we've been in this series called uh, Ecclesia, which in the Greek just means uh, a group of people gathered, believers gathered together. But in this series, we're talking about the fact that it, it, that name kind of began over time to take on the uh, translation of the church. It used to mean just a group of people that gathered together. 10 or 15 people gather and listen to something is what Ecclesia meant. And then over time, it began to pick up the, the connotation that, no, it's a gathering of, of Christians They've gathered together, and now Ecclesia, the definition from the Greek is literally the church. So we've, we're in this series, we're talking about the seven churches of Revelation. Jesus literally writes seven letters to seven churches. Uh, he gives it, kind of downloads this information in a vision, uh, in an experience with the Apostle John. And then as John is taking this down, evidently they have a meeting on the Isle of Patmos, John is, is exiled to the island of Patmos, and he is, uh, you know, he's literally on the, sort of on the chain gang. He's moving rocks and stuff. The man's 90-plus years old. And he has this vision. He has a meeting, and people come from these churches that represent these churches. And he gives copies of the book of Revelation to these messengers. They take it back to their churches. It's the reason we have the letter uh, and the book of Revelation now, because that just was disseminated around to the different churches uh, in Asia and all around. Uh, we've talked about five churches so far. This is going to be our sixth one today. We're going to talk about the Church of Philadelphia. Uh, two of the churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, were not rebuked. They were not uh, discouraged or um, warned, I should say, is a better word. They were not warned for some behavior in, in any way. They were just encouraged, and they were just uh, uh, given sort of uh, a commendation for who they had been and what they had been doing. Five of the churches were kind of rebuked. Five of the churches were encouraged to make some changes, uh, but not this one today. In fact, I would say if there is a church for us to glean from in this series, it is the church that we look at today, the Church of Philadelphia. An amazing place. And, and Jesus uh, goes on and on about how he wants to bless this incredible church. So Philadelphia, you know we got one of those too in, in uh, Pennsylvania, right? And it means uh, the city of brotherly love. That's not just a, a phrase on a license plate. It's literally what the Greek word means, brotherly love. Philadelphia means brotherly love. This Philadelphia in, in Asia was founded by a guy by the name of Attilus II Philadelphus. And they gave him this little nickname, Philadelphus, because he was loyal and loved his older brother very much. His older brother was the king of Pergamum. Remember we talked about the church at Pergamos? And this is, this is the, the guy who founds Philadelphia is the younger brother of the king of Pergamum. And so he gets this nickname for being loving and loyal to his brother. And so the city picks this name up. Uh, it is a uh, prominent city in the sense that it is 
very well connected. 25 miles southeast of Sardis, the city we talked about last week. It sits on sort of a crossroads, one main highway that goes all the way to Smyrna, and it goes east into Phrygia. And it's, this is an incredible place of connection and learning. So multiple cultures, multiple languages, multiple different lifestyles and people. Uh, in fact, this city was sort of known for moving forward the Greek culture and Greek language into different cultures. It was, it was an important city. There was also a very uh, large Jewish community, just as there was in Sardis that we talked about last week. Uh, it had been there for about 300 years. And then in the same way as Sardis that we talked about last week, the earthquake that hit in 17 AD destroyed Sardis. You remember I talked about the citadel up on the cliffs, destroyed the citadel. It also destroyed much of Philadelphia, and it became a part of their life to be among the ruins of the earthquake. Uh, this was a, a rough place. In fact, every single day there were tremors for years from that earthquake. Can you imagine how frightening that would be? Uh, so this big uh, Jewish community, this large Jewish synagogue was very hostile to Christians. Uh, if, you, if you, you know, obviously the Jewish faith had been around for a long time, and if this young faith of Christianity comes along, and if you left the Jewish faith and became a Christian, you were ostracized. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. So they were very hostile to Christians. Uh, but this, this church was set at an incredible place in time and opportunity. And so we're going to see that Jesus, because this church has been so faithful and, and, and obedient, Jesus is going to bless this church. In fact, if I were to give a secondary title to the message, it would be the church, the blessed church. I mean, this church is so blessed by the Lord. I want us to read the blessings that he gives this church. Look with me in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 17 through 13. It says this, uh, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. It says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep, from, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those uh, who dwell on the earth. I am coming uh, soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray this morning, can we? Father, how kind you are, how loving you are. Thank you for your mercy that's new today, Lord, your word tells us. God, thank you for this letter, and thank you for this church as an example for us. It's not that they didn't face difficult things, they did, and yet somehow they endured. Somehow they, they were faithful to you, Lord, they loved you. And uh, what, a, what a testimony to us as a church. May we learn from this church. God, I pray with all my heart that the, the spirit of the living God, the same spirit that gave this information and speaks to these churches, will speak to our church today and anyone who's watching. God, that you would lead us to all truth by that spirit and that I would decrease in this time, Jesus. 
Lord, that you would increase, that you would challenge us by whatever it is you want us to know and live by, and we would have the courage to do so. We love you, Lord. We give you this time as we study your word in your precious and wonderful name. And the church said, that sounds good. Been a while. All right, so we've talked about five churches so far. Uh, in, in these five churches, we've seen one that was, was not rebuked, the church of Smyrna. Jesus said the church of Smyrna was going to be a church that was going to be very persecuted, and it was extremely persecuted. And you might even remember he mentions in the letter to the, to the Smyrna church, he calls the synagogue there the synagogue of Satan, which is what he's also called the synagogue here in Philadelphia. Very interesting. Very persecuted group of people. Uh, he encourages these churches as well. So it's rebuke as well as encouragement. But I also want you to know that the pastor at the church in Smyrna was a guy by the name of Polycarp. You ever heard that name before? Um, we were flipping through the channels the other night and we saw this movie called Polycarp and it was on like a Christian channel. I'm like, hey, I know that guy. He was the pastor at Smyrna. So we just stopped and we watched the movie. It was pretty cool. Well, the thing about Polycarp, he's famous for basically giving his life and standing for Christ. He was martyred the pastor at the church of Smyrna. He was martyred. They were going to burn him at the stake. So they, they placed him to be burned, and the flames weren't getting to him quick enough to kill him. So they ran him through with a spear. But they martyred this man, incredible man, standing for the faith, pastoring people. Not only did they murder and, and martyr Polycarp on that day, they murdered and martyred 11 believers from the church at Philadelphia. You know, sometimes we read this book or this letter to the Church of Philadelphia and we go, man, they were awesome. They must, you know, they probably didn't have it that hard. Isn't that what we do? We come up with another narrative that it makes it easier for somebody else to live for Christ. Well, they haven't faced what I've faced. Yeah, but they didn't go through this. No, listen, Polycarp, the pastor at Smyrna, was martyred and 11 believers stood for Christ and gave their lives on the same day in the Colosseum. It's, it's a horrible thing, but it, it gives us some information about this church, doesn't it? It wasn't, it wasn't a perfect place. They weren't uh, exempted from difficulty and persecution and trials. No, 11 strong believers gave their lives to stand for Christ. What would that be like in our church in this morning, just for the ones that are here? If we said, hey, 11 people, we need you to stand up and give your life for Christ. It's hard to put it in that sort of sense, isn't it? We don't think in those terms of persecution, and yet these believers had to think that way every single day. So I want to I get into our text. Jesus reminds the church at Philadelphia of who he is. He's done this in all these letters. He tells these churches a little bit about who he is in a very relevant way, something about the city, something about himself. But he has a way of saying, I know this is relevant to your city or relevant to your situation, but I'm better still. I love the way he does this. Look at the verse seven here. It says, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Again, if you read some of these things in Revelation at face value, you kind of go, I don't know, keep going. Let's just move on, <laughs> right? But let's not do that. Let's dig, dig a little deeper. What's Jesus saying here? Number one, we need to realize this is a very Jewish culture. Because they had a synagogue, because Jews had been in this place for 300 years, uh, that is a prevailing culture there. Where's the first place that we see a lot of people? Paul, 
go to preach the gospel in new cities, right? Synagogues. So this would have been the place that evangelism and mission would have started in the synagogue. People would have come to Christ in the synagogue. They would have been baptized. They would have been established in the faith and made disciples in the synagogue. And so these are, this is a very Jewish uh, area and Jewish Christians. So Jesus, in his kindness and love, he speaks to this church for, sort of from a Jewish place. You see, God refers to himself time and time again in the Old Testament as uh, the Holy One of Israel, Right? He, he says that through, all throughout the Old Testament. So for Jesus to say, the one who speaks to you is the Holy One. He's making a connection to that Jewish group, to this Old Testament a messianic uh, aspect of who he is. It, it's just what he's doing in, in love and connection. And then the next thing he says, he's true. I, I love that. Do you know anybody who's true? We've added this little phrase, he's true blue, or whatever, you know. When I say that, do you know who I'm talking about? Is there somebody that comes to your mind that you go, man, I know somebody who's true. I was thinking about this. I, I can look at many of you and say that. But I was thinking about my friend, uh, Carl Sorrells. That guy's true. If you know him, he is just as good as gold. He, he's just an amazing man. He serves his family. He serves his church. He serves his friends. He, he is just an amazing guy. He's true. If I needed something, I'd call Carl, and he would be right there. I know he would. So what is Jesus saying about himself when he says, I'm true? He's saying, really, something in contrast to the experience of these believers in Philadelphia. What's he saying in contrast? He's saying, you've been a part of this. You've seen this, these evil people who lead the synagogue. They're not holy. They're evil. And they are not true. They are deceptive. Do you see that? So Jesus is saying in contrast, I'm nothing like them. I'm holy and I am true. I will be faithful to you. I will care for you. It's a, a beautiful sense of, of connectedness that Jesus gives these believers. And then he says, um, say exactly what he says in the text. He says, the holy one, the true one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens. What in the world does that mean? Well, if you think about the fact that this Jewish culture, uh, if, you, if you were uh, a Jew and you came to Christ, you came to believe in Christ, you would have been ostracized. Don't you come back to this family. You're no longer a part of this family. You're no longer a part of the synagogue. You're no longer a part of Jewish faith. And remember I told you this thing called the curse of minimum. They literally would say, if you don't follow the, the Hebraic law, then we're going to erase your name from the book of life. Of course, they, you know, they can't do that, Jesus said. We talked about that. But that's what they would tell people. So there was this, this sense of ostracizing people, excommunicating people, not just from a church setting, from a community setting. It would have been hard to get jobs. It would have been hard to have life with others. They literally locked people out of the church. And Jesus says, but guess what? They are not over the house of David. I am. Jesus says, I'm the holy one. I'm the true one. And I am over the house of David. Who's the house of David? All Jews, right? All Jews. That's the house of David. I am over the house of David. And guess who holds the keys? Not them. They don't lock you out. I'm the one who opens I'm the one who gives entrance, not into a synagogue, but into a heavenly place, 
right? Into eternal life. Jesus is the key. And so he speaks this in such a loving and relevant sense to these people. So moving on here. So this is a place, the synagogue would have been a place where young believers met even in the synagogue, uh, the center of community. And so Jesus is, is speaking to them in such a caring sense. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to be true to you. And uh, they can't keep you out of what I want to bring you a part of. So he gives entrance into this family of faith. Um, and then he says something very interesting. He says, um, he doesn't rebuke them as he has these other churches. He gives his sort of introduction to who he is, very relevant, very caring, very loving. But then at other places, he's sort of gone into some encouragement and then some rebuke. He doesn't rebuke Philadelphia. He, he, just, he just blesses them. Can I just tell you, listen, when you live a life of obedience to the Lord, was this church perfect? Was this a city of sinless people? Jesus didn't have to rebuke these people. They were perfect. No. They're just like you and me. But what's the difference? They took God at his word. They loved him. They lived out their faith. And he just blessed them. Listen, when we live a life of obedience, God just wants to bless us. He wants to give to us. So there's two points I want to give you this morning. The first one is this. Jesus blesses the faithful church. He blesses a faithful church. Verse 8 says, he says to them, I know your works. I know your works. I know what you've been doing. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What makes this church so faithful? What is it that they've done? Well, let's just look in that verse just for a moment. Number one, they have a genuine faith. It's not just something that they say they have. Not just something they put on a census, some Christian. No, their lives live uh, what their hearts believe. They have works. They're doing things. People could look at them that don't know them and go, I bet that, I don't know, that guy's doing something that doesn't bring any gain to his life. You know, he's not, he's not making money for, for serving those people. He's not, you know, they can see when we're serving people and loving the Lord with, with our lives and not just our words. Jesus says, I know your works. Then, then we see he says, you have, uh, you've kept my word. What does it mean to keep the word? It means to value the word of God. Do we value the word? You've kept it. You know, somebody gives you a, an heirloom, and it means everything to you. Some of you have something that's an heirloom. Somebody's passed on to you, and you keep it. You place it in a safe place. It means everything to you. If it went away, it would break your heart. Do you value the word of God in that same way? Do you keep the word of God? Do you live it? Are you obedient to it? Do you value it? Do we protect it? We talked about the church at Thyatira, which had allowed this uh, prophetess to come in who was speaking false doctrines. They, they weren't protecting the word. They weren't protecting the truth. So Jesus is saying, you live this word. You value this word. You protect this word. And then he says, you have not denied my name. In other words, you have stood for me. Of course, we in Christian tradition, we know that 11 believers gave their lives to stand for his name. You know, I remember one time I was in uh, India, the only time I've been to India. We went to multiple places in India. Um, and we went to this place in northern India. It's called Srinagar 
or by another name, it's called cashmere. It's very um, debated over, fought over area. It's in this tiny little triangle right on the borders. Pakistan wants it, India wants it. There's always fighting, There's always, it's always war-torn. When we flew in, we flew into a, a strip that had tanks all over the thing, all over the airfield. Uh, phones wouldn't work, they had locked down. Everything was a very demilitarized zone, or militarized zone, I should say. It was, it was kind of creepy. And I'll never forget driving into the country and we come up on a detail, an armed detail of about 30 guys with machine guns. We're a little car full of Americans. And they had told us that this, in this area, there's often a lot of kidnappings. So I'm, I'm putting all these things together, right? And I'm going, huh, yeah. And I, my heart starts beating fast. Like, what's, what's about to happen? And for the first time in my life, I said to my, to my own heart, I said, Drew, if we're kidnapped, are you going to stand for Jesus? Are you willing to die for Christ? Now, I'd ask myself that question in, in times like church and camps and different things. And on American soil, because of those American soldiers, it was much easier to go, you better believe it. But as I'm outnumbered in a place that's kind of scary, that is known for kidnapping, I found my heart going, Lord, I, hope, I think so. I hope so. I, it was just amazing to me how fearful I was. This church had stood for Christ. They had dealt with that type of persecution day in and day out. And they did it all with a little bit of power. Look what Jesus says here. He says in the verse, I know that you have but a little power. You see, theologians believe that this is the tiniest church in all of Asia. And I just love that. I just love the detail of that story, right? The tiniest church in all of Asia is blessed more than any other church. The tiniest one. Not the one that has all the ministry fair. Not the one that has all the, the lights and, and smoke and all the power and all the influence. No, just a small group of people who love Jesus. They didn't have a lot of power. They didn't have a lot of influence. You see, God doesn't care about the number of people in our church. We do sometimes. But he's more concerned about authentic faith being lived out and being seen by the world. He's more concerned about our commitment to his word. Do we value it? Do we keep it? Do we live it? Do we protect it? He's more concerned with our willingness to be his, to be known. I am Jesus. I am his. Do we stand for Christ? Because when we do, he blesses his church. Here's the next point. I want to give you, in the rest of this text, I see nine different ways that Jesus blesses the church at Philadelphia. Nine different ways. Here's the first one. He says, I have set before you an open door. Now, what I think is interesting about this, all the other blessings that we're going to read, he's going to say something like, I will make or I will do something. But on the first one, he doesn't say that. He says, I have set. There's a difference. This is not future tense. This is, it's already been done for you. What is Jesus saying when he says, I have set before you an open door? Well, remember me saying that this city uh, set in a crossroads of influence. Multiple cultures, multiple languages, multiple different opportunities. Jesus is saying, I have already put out an opportunity for you. You are sitting in the middle of an amazing opportunity 
for the gospel of Jesus. That's what he's saying. You have an amazing opportunity to influence the world. All these cultures, all these languages, all these inroads to your city. You can go anywhere you want. This is the opportunity I've set before you. Will you take it? Will you walk through the door of opportunity that I've given you? It's not something I'm going to do in the future. It's something that's waiting on you. I don't know about you, but that feels convicting to me. Just outside those doors, wait an opportunity that God has already given us. We don't have to pray, Lord, is there an opportunity maybe that you'll show? It's already out there. We just have to be willing to walk through the doors and get busy in the mission of Jesus. Also wondered about this. How often do we see an opportunity for mission as a blessing? Right, you got a neighbor that just moved in down the street, two doors down. Do you think, oh God, thank you for the blessing of taking your gospel to the neighbor down the street? Or do you go, I probably need to take some cookies. All right? Probably ought to get to know them. I know we talked, we did the whole neighbor series, right? An opportunity for mission of Jesus is a blessing. Do you see that? The first blessing Jesus gives this amazingly faithful church is the opportunity for ministry and mission. What a blessing we have to serve the Lord and take his gospel to the world. Number two, he says, I will make them bow before your feet. He's speaking of their enemies, the, the, the ones in this synagogue. Verse nine says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, very strong words, who say that they are Jews and they're not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. You see, the people who have shut the door of community on these young believers that were of the Jewish faith and now they've come to know Christ, they are now persecuting the body of Christ. They are now enemies of the church. But ultimately, Jesus says at some point, now, and there's, we don't know for sure. We don't know if there's some event that takes place. Maybe there was some sort of revival that took place in this city, in this church, maybe after this letter, where many of the synagogue saw the truth of Jesus and came before the, the believers and, and bowed on their knees and said, you were right. Maybe that took place. We don't know exactly what Jesus is speaking of. But we know this was an evil synagogue because it gives the same name to the, to the synagogue in Smyrna as well as the synagogue in Philadelphia, the synagogue of Satan. What's interesting is Isaiah 45 is a, is a prophecy that says Gentiles will come and they will bow before Jews. Well, Jesus flips the script, doesn't he? And now the Jews at some point are gonna come and bow before the Gentiles. You see, the Jews had rejected Jesus. We talked about this in Galatians quite a bit. They had rejected Jesus as Messiah. The Gentiles had accepted him. What makes us adopted sons and daughters of God is not our lineage. It's not the DNA that runs in our blood. It's the faith in our hearts. We are a part of the family of God. We are a part of, of, of the, him being our father and us being adopted sons and daughters because of our faith, as we talked about in that series Either way, Jesus could have been talking about this eternal statement at the end of time when Paul makes the statement, Philippians 2.9, he says, therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So regardless if it was some event that we don't know took place or not, you know, or he's speaking of this, this thing that we know will take place where all of us, believers and unbelievers, will bow our knees before our Heavenly Father for a holy Jesus and confess that he is Lord. Here's the third blessing that Jesus gives them. He says, they will know that I love you. They will know that I love you. When we, we talk through the Galatians series, Paul's making it so clear that these uh, Judaizers, the circumcision party that he talks about, they're trying to make it about DNA. They're trying to make it about lineage. They're trying to make it about, no, we have to do this. In fact, it says in Acts 15, what they were saying is, no, you have to be circumcised in order to, know, to go to heaven. That is, that is a different gospel, Paul says. In fact, he says this in Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Doesn't matter. Then he says, but only faith working through love. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. Jesus loves the church. Did you know that? Let me go, let's go back a little bit to the, to, the, to the Sunday school verse, can't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world. And if we believe, then we're brought into this family and he loves his family. What did Paul say about Jesus and his love for the church in Ephesians 5? He said Jesus so loves the church that he laid his life down for the church. He loves the church. And those who have rejected God one day will see how much he loves his church. Verse 10 says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. A couple of things here that I want you to see Jesus is speaking of. He says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance. Jesus in the Gospels talks a lot about persecution. How he has been persecuted, and guess what? If you follow him, you will also be persecuted. Right? We've heard that a lot from the Lord. Be patient in persecution. Endure. And Jesus is seeing in this church people doing that exact thing. That's exactly what they've done. They have been faithful with patient endurance over persecution. But then he tells them something amazing. And, and this, again, is a verse that is debated quite a bit. He says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. And he goes on to explain uh, some other aspects. But, and we, again, we don't know if there's some worldwide event that, that we don't, we're not aware of or what the case may be. But I think Jesus here is speaking of, I think he's backed up a little bit and showing a a big picture. He's saying not just to the church at Philadelphia, but he's saying to the church of Jesus that he will remove us from trial. At some point, there's going to be an hour of trial. You know, we've heard the, the word, if you can't be around the church very long and hear the word rapture, right? You've heard the word rapture? I don't know about you, I've thought about it a lot more in the last couple of months. 
with all the junk that we've had to face, all the stuff we're going through, we're going, are there these signs, are these signs of the end times? Or is Jesus about to come back? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but this, I think this verse speaks to that moment. He says, I am going to keep you from this hour of trial. The Greek literally says this, I'm going to pick you out. I'm, I'm going to take you out. That's what it says. Before this trial, I'm going to take you out. You won't have to be a part of this trial. You see, when you study, the study of eschatology is a study of end times. And there's three popular views, at least, right? Pre-tribulation, which means Jesus is going to take us out before the tribulation, before things get crazy. Then there's a, a view of mid-tribulation, right in the middle of all the craziness that's going on that we see in Revelation, Jesus is going to take us out. Or Jesus is going to allow us to go through all the tribulation and difficulty, and at the end, post-tribulation, he's going to take us out. Friends, hear me saying the good news is he's going to take us out, <laughs> right? Whether it's before, middle, or end, I don't know, but he's taking us out. Eternally, he will deliver us, and we don't know when it's going to happen. I, my, myself, believe this verse speaks about a pre-tribulation uh, view. Um, here's the reason to think that. He says, I'm going to keep you from a trial. I'm going to keep you from the trial. I'm going to take you out of the trial. This trial is coming to the whole world, he says. We haven't seen some amazing trial that, that this speaks of, I don't believe yet. I believe that, that uh, Jesus is speaking about the end times. I think he's speaking about tribulation. And he says it's going to be uh, coming to the entire world. And then he gives this really telling statement when he says, to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, in Revelation, six other times it uses this phrase, those who dwell on the earth. And every one of those six times it speaks about people who are unbelievers. So if we use that same understanding of what he means by those that dwell on the earth as unbelievers and we place it into this, then this is a trial that's going to come. He's going to take us out before the trial and it's going to be a time of testing for unbelievers on the whole earth. To me, it's very supportive of that, of that view. But regardless, he's going to take us out. Amen? Here's the fifth thing. He says, I'm coming soon. I am coming soon. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You know, a better translation of this would possibly be I'm coming quickly. Because Jesus didn't come soon to the Philadelphians, did he? And what we would understand soon, if I were to say, hey, I'll be over soon, and I didn't show up for 2,000 years, you, you know, you'd be like, well, that really wasn't that soon. But if you change the, the, the translation, if the translation was a little more accurate and said, I am coming quickly, then it's a, different, it's a different term. It means that whenever he comes, he's coming like that. Whenever it is that he comes, he's coming like in a blink of an eye, Paul says in Thessalonians. You won't even know. It's just going to be... Just a moment's notice. He says, until that time, hold fast to what you have. Church of Philadelphia, keep on doing what you're doing. You're doing great. Keep on doing it so that no one seizes your crown. Some people use this phrase, so that no one seizes your crown, as something about losing your salvation. That is not what it's saying. Why do you say that? Because last week we talked about the fact that Jesus said, no one will erase your name from the book of life. It's not about losing your salvation. What he's speaking of is an opportunity for more works. 
This is, what, this is what I mean. Jesus is saying, keep doing what you're doing. You've been doing so great. I'm gonna give, he, told the, he told the church I'm, uh, at Smyrna, I'm going to give you the crown of life for standing for me. There are these rewards that he wants to give. Jesus is saying, you keep doing what you're doing, and I'm going to continue to reward you. But if you, for some reason, fall back, deny my name, don't keep my word, then you're going to let somebody else seize the opportunity for reward. That's what Jesus is saying. I like how Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. He says, what is the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? He's saying this to the Thessalonians. In other words, Paul's saying, my crown, are, they're you. You're the crown. In other words, relationships are everything. Relationships are everything. You are the crown that I will receive. You knowing Christ, you living for Christ. You are my crown. So then Jesus turns and he begins to lay out some really unbelievable rewards for the faithful church in Philadelphia. Verse 12, he says, the one who conquers. You remember what we said about the one who conquers? 1 John 5, verse 5. It says, the one who conquers is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So when we read this, we can read it this way. The one who believes Jesus is the Son of God Jesus says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out from it. The sixth blessing Jesus gives the church of Philadelphia is, he says, I'm gonna make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now listen, there's not some building in heaven where all of a sudden he turns you into concrete and you're there. You're, never, you're going nowhere. You know, it's not, not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. In fact, Revelation 21, 22 says this. John says, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So if the temple is God and the Lamb, what is he saying about making you a pillar of that? He's saying he will make believers, those of us who believe Jesus is the Son of God, the overcomers, the conquerors. He's going to make us a part of himself. That means more to me than being a part of a building, right? I'm a part of Jesus himself. He's bringing me into himself. And then he uses this phrase, he says, you will never go out from it. Now that phrase is important to the Philadelphians. Do you remember why? <laughs> remember when we were talking about the, the earthquake at AD 17? They had tremors daily for years. Can you imagine being in a building full of stone and the earth beginning to shake? What would you do? You'd run out, right? You'd run out. And every single day this would happen and people would run out of these buildings. In fact, it's known from their history, people started going crazy. Can you imagine every day just waiting on the tremor? Is that a tremor? No, I don't think so. Is that, you, people started going nuts because they were running in and out of these buildings. Some people even started living outside of the city so they didn't have to worry about buildings falling. They lived in tents. Jesus, so relevant, so loving, so intimate, says, I'm going to make you a pillar. I'm going to make you a part of me. And guess what? You never have to leave. You'll never have to run out. You'll never have to be afraid. You never have to fear for your safety or have insecurity again. Because you'll be a part of me. And then he says these other three blessings that I want to close. And he says, and I will write on him, the conqueror, right? The overcomer, the one who believes that he's the son of God. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. 
The seventh blessing he gives to the church is, he says, I will write on him the name of God. Jesus is speaking about possession. We belong to God. We are his. The Bible says we've been bought with a price, right? We're his. The other day, uh, we took our dog to the vet, and my wife, we have this really fancy collar thing that goes around her. Lori grabbed a, a Sharpie, and she wrote our name on the, on the leash because we don't want to lose the leash. It's kind of expensive. We want people to know, that's our leash. We're going to get that back. That's ours. Don't, don't anybody take it, right? Jesus is saying, I'm writing the, your owner. I'm going to write your owner on you. I don't know if this is a, a pro-tattoo scripture or not. I'm not sure. I'm not going to say it. But Jesus says, I'm going to write on you the name of your owner. God owns you. He possesses you. You are his. We're his sons and daughters. This is not just about who we are. It's about whose we are. Here's the second thing he says in the eighth blessing. He says, I will write the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven. The new Jerusalem is, is spoken of in Revelation is this remaking of heaven and earth. But it's not just a place, friends. It's also spoken of as a people. Jesus is talking about, first of all, about number one, God is your God. He's, you're his. And then he says, but you also have a place to belong. You have a citizenship. You have a community where you are loved and known forever, where you never have to worry about running out. You can feel secure and safe and loved. So there's identity in whose we are. There is a community of belonging. And then lastly, the ninth blessing, Jesus says, and I will write my new name on him. We have identity. We have citizenship and belonging and community. And then now we're going to have Jesus' new name on us. Have you ever gone to a party or to a concert and somebody bought you tickets before? And, and you know, we went to a, a kind of a fancy dinner not too long ago with some friends and we didn't pay to go. So it's that kind of moment where you're like, hey, we're, we're with him, right? That, that sort of a deal. We, we didn't pay. We're not sure. We're going to wait. We're going to back up. And here's the name that this should be under. Listen, we're going to be under Jesus' name in heaven. He's paid the way. He's made a way for us. It's under his authority and under his new name, which many theologians believe is the name Lord. Peter preaches at Pentecost and he says he has been given, Jesus has been given this name, Lord and God. And then in verse 13, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen, I want to close this morning. What are you hearing today? What are you hearing about the church of Philadelphia? What are you hearing about South City Church? What are you hearing about your own life? The smallest church in Asia was the most blessed. God doesn't care about how many we seat. I think he cares more about how many we send. You know, last week at the end of the service, I don't know if you saw it, Jonathan and Susanna Duncan, uh, this was their last Sunday last week. And we prayed over them quickly, and I didn't even know it was their last Sunday, and kind of bummed me out, to be honest with you. I love them, and I'm going to miss them. 
But the beauty is God is going to use them where he's sending them. And we've got to get our hearts in such a place where it's, it's not just about how many can we cram in here. That doesn't matter. He's not concerned about that. He's saying, love on people. Let my grace change. Let, let it transform people. And then as they're transformed, send them out. Let them go. I wished happy birthday to a friend of mine, kind of a protege friend of mine, who was in our church in, in Franklin, Tennessee, one of the worship leaders that I kind of mentored. And I remember I sat down with about 10 worship leaders at one point, and I, there's something about Nashville that kind of glazes people's eyes over, and they think, oh, it's the greatest place in the world. It is a wonderful place, but there's a lot of places of need around the world. And I remember saying, guys, wake up. There's nothing, there's nothing that special about Nashville. Jesus needs you to serve around the world. Get over Nashville and go serve the Lord wherever he calls you. And there was this one guy in that meeting who said, yeah. And in a short time later, he took a church in Buffalo, New York, a church plant. He served that church plant faithfully for five years. He got his MDiv. He, he leaves Buffalo, and now he's planting a church in Alabama, back close to his hometown. God's not concerned about how many people we have and all the number of ministries we can put on our website. He wants to know if we're going. Have we been changed? Have we been transformed? And when that happens, what do we do with it? We're just going to come back and talk about how much we know? God, forgive us if that's the case. May we go. He's given us incredible opportunities. It's a blessing. Listen, what is a faithful church? A church that lives what they believe, keeps and protects the word of God and will not deny his name. They'll stand for his name. We have some students in here today. Listen, if you're a student, you're in college or below, there are times where you're gonna need to, to make a stand for Jesus, kids. Listen, are you doing that? Are you willing to do that? Adults, we still have stands that we need to make. It may be with our family, it may be with coworkers, it may be with neighbors. Are we willing to hold fast to his name and represent him? And when we're a faithful church, God wants to bless us. He's already given us the opportunity. It waits just on the other side of that door. We're we gonna walk through it. You know, um, I'm thankful for this text. Much of it is confusing and hard to understand. I pray that I've gotten most of it right with the teachers and, and uh, theologians and commentarians that have given me what I've given to you today. But the thing I mostly want to say to us today, no matter what age you are, is this. If Jesus were to come back right now, would you be ready? You ready? Because no man knows the day, the hour, the time. And it's going to be just like that. You won't have a moment to stop and go, oh, Lord, I, I want to know you. I want to repent now. No, no, no. We got to do that now. When I was in this group, New song, I, we used to sing every night. People get ready. You know the song? There's a train coming. That song talks about Jesus coming. Are you ready? Do you have Jesus as your ticket? Do you have salvation where you're ready to go? And lastly, I just will just remind us, I love this, this promise of this reward that we are God's possession, that we will have a community, not only 
here. That's what we, we're supposed to be here, but also there. We're going to have a citizenship in this new Jerusalem. And Jesus himself is going to write his new name on us. Mm. I pray that we are a faithful people and a faithful church like Philadelphia, don't you? I pray that we can learn from them today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the example of this beautiful church. You know, in my heart and in my mind, I want to be the Philadelphian church. I pray, God, that you would look down on us and go, yeah, keep going. And I see us similar to that church, God. I believe we sit at some crossroads as well. Maybe physically, maybe 430 and I-30 are the crossroads. Maybe the crossroads are southwest meaning west, meaning central Little Rock. I don't know, God, what, what different cultures and different people and different languages and different opportunities await us outside that door this morning. But my prayer is that you would wake us up to the blessing of mission, to the blessing of making you known. God, may we value your word. May we stand for your name and may our lives be filled with works because it's what our hearts believe and we love you. And as we love you, as we talked about in our series, we don't just love you with all that we are, God, we also wanna love people. The way we love ourselves and even greater, the way you have loved us, sacrificially. Father God, if there's anybody here in this service this morning or anybody watching online that doesn't know you as their savior, God, would you make them ready? If you come back right now, Lord, I'll just say amen. I'll be ready to meet you in the sky. But God, if there's one person that's listening, that's in this presence of my voice or watching today that, that is not sure, may they stop, may they pause and say, Lord, I wanna know you. I wanna know that I'm ready if you come back right now. I wanna be ready. And God, would you please prepare our, our hearts and our minds, not just to know you, but to make you known in mission. With every opportunity you give us, may we see it as a blessing. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We give you this time and this day in your precious name. Amen.